Well, you know, there's there's a whole lot of things that happen in this world that sometimes we just don't understand. But one thing that that I've learned, and I don't claim to be any rocket scientist, I can't remember most of what I have learned, but I do know this, that God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, sent his only son right down here onto this very world and lived just like we do. He felt all the pain that we feel. He, uh, he was there. He was here. And he died for us. And he took all our sins on his shoulders. Now, I got a little deal there. Well, there's been, we've all got problems. We've all felt hurt and pain. This deal, uh, I first heard a guy by the name of Ed Bruce sang it. And it's called, I Know. I said, God, I hurt. And God said, I said, God, I'm so depressed at times. He said, that's why I give you sunshine. I said, but God, my loved one died. God said, so did mine. I said, God, mine was such a loss. And he said, they nailed mine to a cross. He said, I know I'll not forsake you. The covenant is sealed. I'll not forsake you. You're not alone. I'm all around you. My glory is revealed. My love surrounds you. And I said, but God... Your loved one lives. And God said, so does yours. I said, God, where are they tonight? He said, be at peace, my child. They're in my light. He said, I know I'll not forsake you. The covenant is sealed forsake you. You're not alone. I'm all around you. My glory is revealed. My love surrounds you. You're not alone. I said, but God, I hurt. And God said, my child, shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept.
Good morning, church. I get the opportunity to wash you with the word this morning. So, if you'll join me, we're going to be Luke 23. And Jackie's going to finish up to the end of the chapter. So, starting in 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what, he had, what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray. Father God, I just lift this day up to you and I thank you for it. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together in your name, Lord. I I thank you that uh, we can do it freely, uh, Lord. Uh, The days will come when, when whether we see it or our children see it or our children's children see it, but it won't be free, Lord. It will cost us something, Lord. And, And as we... As we go through this passage, that I just pray for wisdom upon Jackie, Lord. I pray that uh, your words would come forth, that uh, you, your glory would shine. I pray that we would appreciate the, the sacrifice that this passage tells us about, Lord. I pray that it changes us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us, that it would touch everybody here, that we would not leave this place without recognizing and realizing that we need you, that we would appreciate what you gave for us, Lord. That it matters, that it means something. That we don't just punch a card, Lord. That this relationship costs something. That there's a call on our lives. That you desire us to share this message with others. That, that, that you don't want us to put a candle under a lampshade. That you want us to show it. To sh- let the light shine. To touch other people. So I just pray that we would, uh, that our eyes would be would be set on you. I pray that our hearts would be set on you. I pray that we would recognize the gravity of the situation, the gravity of the calling that you have for us, the gravity of our situation and our fallen nature. Just pray for your glory. Pray for your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe, guys, remember... A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the idea that as the writers of each of the Gospels pen together, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have a point, right? They're not all, it's not like they're trying to report something to the newspaper. 
They're trying to describe something specific to us. Each one. That's why there's four. And they're not trying to tell us the, the same things over and over again. They're trying to open our eyes. Do you, can you see this aspect of who Jesus is and, and what he's about? And as we look at Luke, we want to we continue to ask ourselves, right? Why, why is he telling us what he's telling us the way he's saying it? What is he trying to get across? What does he want me to see? Because I want to be able to think his thoughts after him. I want to be able to put myself down into the story. So a couple of weeks ago, you know, I, I talked about the idea that I'm Barabbas. I'm the one who got let loose so that Jesus Christ would be crucified for me. And we see this picture. And then last week we have two thieves and everybody is faced with one of those two choices when they come to Christ, right? Well, either we come to him and we beat our breasts as it were and we declare, Lord, have mercy on me sinful man or we mock him one of those two things and the one will be with him in paradise and the other just suffers on the cross alone today as we come to the text we come to the text and we recognize there's a few things that luke wants us to glean first he wants us to understand not only did jesus live his life as an innocent man not only did um Pilate declared him innocent three times and then beat him. Not only did Herod declare him innocent once and then beat him. Not only did all of these things take place, but then the centurion declared him innocent as he dies. So not only did he live innocently, not only did he walk innocently, he died innocently. And one of the unique things that we look at in regard to the Passover lamb, was that the Passover lamb had to be without spot or blemish. It, it couldn't have had anything. That's why God chose lambs. You know, it, it, it is a, maybe it's a, a, a little bit uh, failed picture, but the idea is that they're, they're innocent. They're, they're not vicious. They're not, you know, nobody ever said, oh my gosh, there's a lamb chasing me. What am I going to do? <laughs> Right? Most of the times, oh, how cute. Oh, cute little lamb. And the picture all along was not, can God come up with some weird system of, of blood atonement by which some poor innocent creature has to pay? What's it all pointing to? What does it want to open our eyes to? That that's who Jesus Christ was. When he appears on the scene, John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, what? The Lamb of God. Why did he say that? Who takes away what? The sin of the world. Why? Because the way he lived, the way he died, and next week, by the way, he rises again. So all of these declarations become symbolic for us to understand, to begin to recognize the, the beauty of what Christ is accomplishing for you and I. He is making a way, a way for us. Paul's going to say in his letters, 169 times, how many times you got to say something for it to be important? 169 times, Paul's going to say in 13 epistles that we have to be in Christ Jesus. Now, in case we don't know what that means, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we are in Christ Jesus when we hear the gospel 
and we believe, then we are in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, then you and I are just men made perfect. Not because we are in and of ourselves. Not because we did something that made us perfect, but because He did something. Because He accomplished something. So Paul will tell us things like, be careful to be clothed in Christ. What's he telling us? We gotta put on Jesus. We gotta stay, we gotta stay in the vehicle. I hate to use this, this illustration because it fails on a million different levels, but the idea is I gotta be in him. Like as though he was a bus or he was a car. And for me to be righteous, I gotta get in the car and I gotta stay in the car. And when I get in the car and I stay in the car, I'm a righteous man. Now, I know I'm broken. I know my own brokenness, but it's Christ that makes me clean. I know my guilt, but it's Christ that makes me innocent. The scripture tells us, Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become what? The righteous, you know another way to say that? Innocent like God. In fact, you know, I always share when we we do Living by the Book, which is learning how to study the Bible and read the Bible. I always challenge people to use multiple translations. I hate the word version because it it connotes the idea that there's somewhere a different version of God's Word. It's not a different version. It's just a different translation. There's a lot of ways to translate any given phrase in a different language. And so we use different translations to really try to wrap our mind around the nuance of language. We write, writers write a certain way to get across certain ideas. And since they wrote in a variety of different languages, it's helpful to look at a variety of different translations. NIV, King James Version, ESV, NASB, whatever. <clears throat> because it helps us get to glean, to pull out the nuance of the language so that we can lay hold of the language. People ask me all the time, Jackie, how come you use ESV? No particular reason. Not, there's not just one translation out there that's holy. Do you guys get that? There's just God's Word that's holy. And I want to understand it every possible way I can. So if I pick up uh, The Message by Eugene Peterson, and maybe you like him and maybe you don't, but I can learn something different about the nuance of language in God's Word by reading Him. His, his translation. If I look at the New Living Translation, I get something different. If I look at New King Jer- not that I'm getting a different version of the events. That's crazy. What I'm getting is the nuance of language. Why these words? Why this way? What does He want me to pull? What does He want me to glean? So in, as we do that, as we look at those various translations, you'll discover that the centurion declared, surely this man was righteous. And another translation will say, surely this man was innocent. Why is that? Those aren't two different words in the Greek. They're the same idea. Pilate declaring Jesus innocent three times or not guilty three times is the same as declaring him righteous. It's the same as declaring that 
The things he did and the things he said, Pilate may have thought he was crazy, but he could find no reason to refute any of them. Two other Gospels will have the centurion saying, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now how does that relate? How can it say he was the Son of God and Luke says he was innocent? Well, in order for him to be not guilty, the things he said he was, he'd have to be. No? Don't you understand? Either C.S. Lewis said either he's a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. That's it. If he is who he said he was, he's not guilty. He's innocent. He's righteous. He's the son of God. So we come to this day. Begins in verse 44 by telling us it was now the sixth hour. That's noon. The day starts at 6 a.m. <clears throat> For those of you who maybe thought the day should start at 10 a.m., you know, I, I'm with you. I like that better, but the day starts at 6, at least the Roman reckoning. So the sixth hour is noon. The um, ninth hour is 3. So we've got this. We know it's the day of preparation for the Sabbath. A lot of people want to argue about the days. This kind of takes a lot of the argument out. The Sabbath day is Saturday. The preparation for the Sabbath is... It's the only day it can be. Preparation day can't be Wednesday for the Sabbath on Saturday. Now, please understand that there are multiple Sabbaths, not just Saturdays. First, The first day of a, of a festival, like Passover, or... Uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first day is a, a, a Sabbath. Whether it lands on a Sabbath or not, doesn't matter. The last day of the feast, if it's a seven-day feast, the last day of the feast is a Sabbath. Whether it lands on a Saturday or not. But there's no reason to think that this was any of those. This was probably the normal Sabbath. They had had an earlier one. And now it's a preparation day. It's Friday. Jesus is on the cross at noon on Friday. I know a lot of us struggle with, uh, with literalism. We want to find out how to get Jesus in the ground for 72 hours. I'm not sure why. Well, Jesus said, a sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. That's got to be 72 hours. No, it don't. In the book of Esther, Esther declared a fast before she went to go see her husband. She said, everyone fast for me three days and three nights. But the problem was she went to see the king before the 72 hours were up. That makes three days and three nights what we call an idiom or a figure of speech. Three days, three nights. Jesus is in the ground three days. He's going to be in there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and he's going to rise Sunday morning. So we know that... <laughs> it's, it's our hang-ups that cause that, not... It wasn't a hang-up for them, right? It's not a hang-up for them. The reality is, the Bible told us in... I want to say, for some reason I'm thinking Psalm 16. That might be right. You guys might have to check me up later, but... The, basically, it's, it declares that you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And the idea of corruption was that the body was deteriorating. So the Holy One, the Messiah, his body was not going to deteriorate before the Lord called him back. So he's not going to be in the ground four days. He's going to die, be buried, and rise again on the third day, 
on the third day. He's going to come up out of the graves Friday. Remember I told you there's a famous sermon. I can't do it. Nobody should ever try to redo somebody else's famous sermon. But I love the line. It's Friday now, but Sunday's a coming. Because a lot of times in our life, we get hung up in the we're in Friday now. Right? It's Friday now. Jesus is in the ground. He's died. It's My whole world's upside down. But the point of the sermon was Sunday's coming. And we all go through heartache and pain and struggle and depression and hurts and pains. And when we do, it reminds us that it's Friday now. But what do we have coming? Sunday's coming. The resurrection is so hopeful for us. Because it means that there's a day, there will be a day, when Jesus Christ is going to put an end to it all. But Friday at noon until until uh, 3 o'clock, we have a first, uh, the first piece of symbolism in the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Listen to what it says. While the sun's light failed. Now, it's funny because people always like to come up with naturalistic ways that these things happen. Well, there must have been an eclipse. Well, there's a problem. It's Passover. So what does that mean? How does that affect anything? It's Passover. And Passover is always around the full moon. And while there is a full moon, there cannot be eclipse. Bummer. Yeah, the sun's light turned out. And when the sun's light turns out, there's... Why does Luke tell us? What's he want us to understand? There's a lot of different references that we (coughs) see throughout Scripture that talks about the darkness being a, a time when it looks like the evil's winning. And so just like that old sermon from long ago, it's Friday now, but Sundays are coming. It might be dark now, but the sun is going to give its light. Now, do we as believers need the sun? This is the beauty of what Revelation promises us. Revelation promises us in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sun. Why? We don't need something natural to make the light. Jesus Christ is the light. He said, I am the light. If he shines, then the darkness is dispelled. So if we have darkness in our life, if there's darkness on the earth, there's darkness all around what's happening that day up on the cross. It's symbolizing that there is a moment in our life, there's times where we feel like darkness is oppressing and everything's dark and everything's dreary and it's all circling the drain. Anybody ever feel that way? But what God wants us to know is it doesn't stay that way. Not ever. It won't stay. That the light is coming. And such a light that no shadow can even dwell therein. But here he is on the cross, <coughs> and darkness descends. Amos 8 9 says, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's a statement of judgment, God's judgment. And what's happening? What's occurring on that cross that we can't even begin to fathom is that Jesus Christ is bearing the burden of the sin of the whole world. 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 says, He has become our propitiation. 
Somebody's got to pay. There's a debt owed. Didn't Jesus tell these parables? There's a debt owed and it's impossible. You can't pay it. So how do you get out? You either go to jail for the rest of your life. How do you get out? Somebody who can pay it needs to pay it for you. That, that's the definition of love. Not that someone requires. That's looking at it wrong. People look at it and they say, why would God require his son's death so that we could be saved? You're looking at it wrong. God didn't require it. Jesus gave it. Even on the cross, we're going to read his final words. What is he going to say? Father, into your hands I what? I commit my spirit. Nobody took it from me. What did I do? I gave it of my own free will. That's love. Love gives all, hoping but not expecting anything in return. And he, he's given it also. In that moment of darkness, it's as though Luke wants us to see when the darkness descends, it's like the sin of the world coming down on that cross. Coming down on Christ. We talk often about the scourgings and the beatings and all those things, but really, I don't, I don't know that those things were all that big a deal to Jesus. The big deal was what was happening when the sun went out. What was happening when Jesus from the cross said these words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. How's it go? Interesting. Anybody read Psalm 22 last week? If you do, you'll hear those same words in the very first verse. wonder why. What was happening in that moment? I don't know. I, I don't know that I can even rightly explain it. All I know is that darkness is symbolizing God's judgment of sin on the earth. And it's all coming down on His Son. Because He was perfect. Because He was pure. Because He was innocent. Like that little lamb. That way back in, in Genesis 22... <clears throat> when God did that crazy thing with Abraham, you guys remember God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one that you love. First time in the Bible that phrase comes up. It's about a father's love for his son. Take that son whom you love to a mountain that I will show you. Turns out to be the same area where Jesus is crucified, Mount Moriah. You know it by another name. Jerusalem's built there. On Mount Moriah. <laughs> Temple Mount's there. On Mount Moriah. Yeah. Take your son to a place that I will show you. And so he takes his son. And his son says, Dad, we got wood and fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, I hate to break it to you, kid. The beautiful thing about that story is that his son Isaac is probably 33. So he don't have to get up on the altar. His dad's an old man. But Isaac does what Jesus does. He gets up on the altar. Looks into the eyes of his father who loves him because he knows he doesn't have to be afraid of his father who loves him. 
And his father reaches up with a knife. Everything within Abraham's body is like, I'm going to do what I've done to the lambs before. And then God stops him. God doesn't require of him what he's willing to pay himself. So Abraham calls the name of the place Yahweh Yideh. God will provide himself the lamb. And all those years ago, God said, what I stopped you from doing, I'm going to do. And my son will look into my eyes like a son to his father saying, there's nothing I have to be afraid of. And he will say to me from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he will freely surrender. And he will freely pay so that there is a way Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. In Christ Jesus, through Him. Somewhere that darkness descending, (coughs) symbolizing all these things coming upon His Son. While the Son's light failed. And what else happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now the curtain of the temple was a hand's breadth wide. You ever try to tear fabric that's that wide? And it was torn how? From the top to the bottom. The earth quaked. The sun went dark. And God tore the only thing that separated us from His presence. The veil, which according to Paul... Is the flesh of Jesus Christ. Jesus' flesh is the veil of the tabernacle. Jesus' flesh is the veil into the Holy of Holies. In fact, it's more than that because if you back up and you look at the tabernacle, there was a gate and the fabric of the gate, the outer gate that goes into the outer court, was the same as the fabric of the door that went into the holy place was the same as the fabric that stood in front of the Holy of Holies. So just in case we miss it, when Jesus said, I am the way, there was no way to come into the presence of God except through the gate, through the door, through the veil. And when Jesus is suffering on the cross, when he dies, that veil is tore. What does it mean? The way is open. Whosoever will can come. Anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. What's the Bible say? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be. (coughs) You can come in. All of this relates to so many stories in the Bible. It kind of boggles our mind. You guys remember the story of Rahab? Right? And Joshua. Everybody tracking with me? Rahab the prostitute. She's a whore. I used that word in church again. Kathy gets mad at me when I do that. The Bible used that word a lot, by the way. It does, it, it, by describing me. That's who I am. Remember, I'm Barabbas, or one of the thieves, or that tax collector beating his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So God would use people that were obvious to everyone sinners, so that no man would have an excuse. Rahab, the harlot, she... She saved the two spies, right? And gave them safe passage out. So the two spies said, God's going to save you because of your faithfulness. 
So what do you need to do? Take a scarlet thread and hang it out your window. Now Rahab's house was on the wall. Anybody remember the story of Jericho? What happened to the wall? Everything but one piece. There was one window on the wall, one house on the wall. Had a scarlet thread. They call it the scarlet thread of redemption. Like a scarlet rope hung out the window. And everyone that came into that room was saved. And so don't you think Rahab called all her friends and family and said, Dude, God's judgment is coming, but He's made a way. Come to my house. Come into my house and you'll be saved. Paul wrote 13 epistles saying the same exact thing, only he said it like this. you got to be in Christ Jesus. So everybody who got into Rahab's house on that day, when the walls came falling down and everybody finds themselves under the judgment of God at Rahab's house, everybody in Rahab's house was saved by the scarlet thread of redemption. You don't think that points to Jesus Christ? You don't think that's about him? He tore the veil. He opened the way. Now whosoever can come in, they can hear the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was born, that he lived, that he died according to the scripture, that he rose on the third day according to the scripture. And if you put your hope and trust in him, turn from your sin and turn toward him, you enter into Christ Jesus. And you will be saved. The darkness descends. The veil is torn. Symbols, symbols of spiritual life and the way being opened. Of the judgment of sin poured out on the body of (coughs) Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Ephesians 2.14 says, For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He tore the veil. There's nothing separates you from the presence of God. Nothing. Romans 8, he would say, what what separates us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Death, persecution, famine, the sword... Angels, can anything separate you from the love of God? The way is open. I'll tell you there's one thing that stops man. His pride. That's why God said, I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Because I'm sure there were people Rahab called and said, come to my house. And I'm not going into the house of a harlot. You're, you're one of those people. Okay, just in case you're one of those people who say you're one of those people, I'm one of those people. Yeah, I'm broken. I'm a mess. I've done bad things in my life. I don't deserve the grace of God. And if you think you do, you just haven't looked in the mirror enough yet. Open that Bible and read it. Pretty soon, the mirror of God's word will show you who you are. And then, you'll say, I'll go to the house of a harlot. If God says, that's where I got to go to be saved. 
There were scribes and Pharisees that said, I'm not going into the house of Jesus Christ. Why would I go there? He lets tax collectors and prostitutes in that house. I'm not going. Well, then you've made your choice, right? Every man has the opportunity to open his heart and make his choice. What will he do? What will he allow to happen? It's interesting. Every time I talk about this and <clears throat> every time I talk about death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, this comes up. Let me read it for you. Matthew 27, 51. It says, Behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And people say, what was that? What was that? Well, Jesus talked about it, guys. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus said, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will. Now, wait. You and I are the dead. Did you catch it? We're the dead. We're Barabbas. We're the criminal. We're dead in trespasses and sin, according to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm dead in my trespasses and sin, but he made me alive. How did he make me alive? Same way he made Lazarus alive. What did he do? He called my name, Jackie. And I responded, yes, Lord. He made the way. And we enter in. We come in to him. And then the dead <coughs> rise. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible's going to tell us, we'll look at it next week. There's this flash of God's power. The earth cracks. The stone is not in front of the tomb no more because I think it just got blown into a billion pieces, but I like that version of my view better. It just blew up. Otherwise, it's better than nobody knows where it's at, isn't it? Nobody knows where a 30-ton stone is. Ah. I know where it is. It turned into sand when God said, get out of my way. Boom. Sand. Doors open. Signifies there's a way in. Come look. Come see. He's not here. He is risen. When that happened, I think there were people who had recently died in the tombs around, in the areas around, that just like Lazarus came forth. And it tripped some people out. They come walking in and said, didn't we just bury you last week? Yeah. What are you doing here? I don't know. Some dude shouted my name and I was here. Poof. What do you think happened then on the day of Pentecost when... Peter said, the one who shouted your name, his name's Jesus. And he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. What do you think people did? The Bible tells us, if you read it, 3,000 souls believed. What happened the second time he preached? 5,000 souls believed. That's a big church, no? 8,000 people? That's twice the size of Buell. That's a lot. Not twice the size of Buell Church. That's like Five times, ten times the size of Buell Church. Twenty times, I don't know. Big. A lot of people. A <laughs> lot of people. Hey, this is a day of signs. A day that's come. It's a day of divine satisfaction. Because God is 
pleased. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his, Jesus' soul, makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul you will see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. People always struggle, I think, sometimes with the concept of the atonement. So listen to what Isaiah 53 says. Isaiah 53 says everyone's not saved. He shall make many. Doesn't give us a number, right? So the number is kind of out there, whosoever will. But he has made, he has made, he has provided the way for them to make many to be accounted righteous. He will bear their iniquities. Verse 46, then Jesus called out with a loud voice and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 31.5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Whoa. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? The psalmist, David, a man after God's own heart, who struggled with depression and darkness and struggled with the hard things of life. He found that he had to come to the same place where he would say, he would look up to his Father in heaven and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus from the cross looked into his Father's loving eyes, didn't have to be afraid. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said to you and I, if any of you will come after me, you must take up his cross and follow me. So to this day, people still, when they pray a prayer of salvation, they look up into the heavens and they declare, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No matter what it looks like, no matter what things are going on at the time, I need to be found in Christ Jesus. He has made a way. I want to be a part of that way that He has made. He has accomplished His purpose. I love what it says in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, Te telestai. It is finished. It's done. The way is paved. It is finished. He bowed His head and He gave up His Spirit. We also know that this day of of Jesus' death was a day of salvation. It says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent, righteous. He was righteous, declared three times by Pilate, once by Herod. One of the criminals said, He's righteous, we're not. And now the centurion has declared in his death. Which means what? He is the perfect Lamb of God, which does what? Takes away the sin of the world. That whosoever will may come. The doors are thrown open. 
That criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. (coughs) Today, that perfect lamb of God. That day was also a day of sorrow. Because all those people that were around watching, you know, I told you last week, everybody likes to watch a car crash. Or they like to show up for it anyway, right? Crash, people, or a fight, and then what happens? People. So you have all these people gathered in this day, but what does it say they did at the end? Did it provide the satisfaction that they wanted? When the people shouted, crucify him and make him pay, and, and they yelled at him and stuck their tongues out at him, spit at him and did all those things while he's on the cross. While all that stuff was happening, when it all was over, when the sun went black for three hours, when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he laid down his head, what did men do? They beat their breast. Do you not see that God in the worst moment set the table for the best moment? In the harshest thing that has ever happened to a human being ever in the history of mankind. So whatever hard thing we're going through, it somehow falls below that day of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? But in that day, what what does he show us? He shows us the heart of men being set up. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Jesus gave us one other example. Luke, the same writer. What was it? When men beat their breasts, what are they doing? When the tax collector beat his breast, what was he saying? God have mercy on me. God have mercy on me. Those same people will be in the crowd in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, the next feast day. Those same people will be there when all of a sudden these guys who were with Jesus who scattered for the crucifixion, they can't beat them to get them to leave. And all of a sudden those guys are walking around and they're speaking in a variety of different tongues and people are hearing them in different languages and as they speak they're singing the praises of God. And then Peter in plain language stands up in front of the people and says, we're not drunk as you suppose. We're come to proclaim to you what has been done. And those same people who beat their breasts earlier and went home seeking mercy and thinking, what did I just see? What did I just do? What was I just a part of? They're going to hear Peter say, and this same Jesus Christ commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. And they're, they're going to, the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, they're struck to the heart. Because Peter says to them, you were there, you were there, and you crucified Jesus. And they say, Lord, what do we need to do? And he says, oh, he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. And so they believe. God doesn't leave us in that state. We beat our breasts in seeking the mercy of God, the forgiveness of our sins. And what does God do? He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Yet Peter said in Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? And Peter said, Jesus commands all men everywhere, repent and believe. So they do. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. We see the response of the woman on this day. And all his acquaintances, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They're a little freaked out. They're a little freaked out about what's going on. They don't, I don't blame them. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Jesus is going to give them the power to be his witnesses, but they don't have it yet. So they stand afar off. Verse 55 says the women who had come with them from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. And then they prepared their ointments and got ready for Resurrection Sunday. They just didn't know it was Resurrection Sunday. And got prepared for the Sabbath. What else happened that day among the people? Not only did they beat their breasts and, and say, Lord, have mercy on the sinners. Not only did women stand afar off, not quite empowered yet to be his witnesses, but you got a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. It says in verse 50, there was a man named Joseph from a Jewish town of Arimathea, a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Not too many people were asking for him. And if they didn't ask for him, they would have thrown him on a pile of bodies that rots in the garbage outside of town in a valley called Gehenna, where the worm never dies and the fires never quenched. In fact, Jesus used that very place to say, this is what hell's like. The place where they throw away the dead. Well, he provides for them a tomb. They removed the body, verse 53. They took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid it in a tomb, cut in the stone where no one had ever been laid. Brand new tomb, probably cut out for Joseph of Arimathea. He's going to be there one day. Now, a family would have a tomb. <clears throat> and so, what you would do when you were buried in those days, they put you in the tomb until your body rotted. When you were rotted... And all that was left was bones. And someone in the family would go back and they would take out your thigh bone. They assumed that the thigh bone, maybe a few others, but primarily your femur. They would take one of your femurs and they would put it in an ostuary. Anybody ever heard of an ostuary? An ostuary is a bone box. They'd put your femur in that bone box so that when the resurrection came, God had something to work with. So, last, I don't know, but in Genesis, God didn't need anything. But anyway, that's how they did it. So they would put you in a cave, in a ground, seal the tomb, let the body rot, go back in and, and take out the bone, and that would be in an ostuary. So if you come with us to Israel, you'll get to see an area in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, not seminary. Gethsemane. <laughs> There's probably something important in that. And then they, uh, and then when we're visiting there, we'll see an ossuary. They have an ossuary there. I think they think it's James's, uh, one of the disciples. But uh, anyways, it's interesting to, to, to go and get a chance to see some of that. So they put them in the ground. That was their plan, right? It's a day of preparation, Friday, and the Sabbath was beginning. That starts at 6 p.m. Friday night. Sabbath hadn't begun yet, so it's still Friday. But Sunday's coming. 
The women who had come, they watched where they put the body, so they didn't walk to a wrong tomb. That's one of the theories about how Jesus rose from the dead. <clears throat> they got lost. They didn't know where to go. They walked to the tomb. They saw the tomb. They prepared their spices, and on the Sabbath they rested, as was the commandment. So for them, this day has been a wild, dark, dismal day. But the Lamb of God just paid for the sin of the world. He made a way. The door is open. The veil is torn. Men can come. And we'll know that. The reason we know that is because what happened on Sunday. The grave cannot hold him. Why? Because he is life. He is life. We always struggle with the idea, how does God die? Yes, indeed, how does God die? But you and I, we're going we're gonna to experience death. Why? Because we run around in a body. Your body is like your car. Anybody still have the car they bought when they were in high school? What happened to that car? It quit working? It fall apart? The wheels fall off of it while you're driving down the road? Eventually you had to get something else? That's the same way it is with our body. Anybody's body's wearing out? Anybody's tires flat every morning? You got to put air in them? <laughs> yeah, I understand. And one day, what's going to happen? I'm going to lay this body down. Now, that's not the end. That's not the end. It's the same thing Jesus did. He laid down his body, died. But he is life. That's why the grave could not hold him. He's just waiting. I got to wait till Sunday morning. Why? Because it's the festival of first fruits. Why is that important? Because I'm going to be the first fruit from the dead to never die again. And then I'm going, all those things I told my disciples when I said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to bring you unto myself that where I am there, you will be also. He's making a new body. Why is he making us a new body? Because we're fleshly. We never existed as a spirit. There's no pre-existence. It's not in the Bible. We never existed as a spirit. We became a life giving the moment God breathed life into Adam. You remember? He formed him of the clay. He bent over and he breathed into him. What did it say? And he became a living being. So we were made fleshly. So there is a new body for us that doesn't wear out, right? We, every year we, or every few years you buy a car, you hope that's the last one. Well, one day when we get to Jesus, he gives us a new body. It is the last one. You can't wear it out. The knees, they don't go bad. Elbows, arms, all that stuff, they're not going to go bad. You don't have to think, what am I going to do for eternity? You're going to enjoy the same things you enjoy now in a new heaven and a new earth without sin without pain without sorrow the way it was intended yeah that will be all because Jesus made a way and now whoever will call upon his name will be saved period you call on his name you do what that tax collector did. You did what those people did, leaving. Oh, what have we done? 
If you can't acknowledge that something in your life you need to beat your breast over, just come to me. I'll give you one of mine. I got a list. I'll share some of mine with you. You can go repent for them. The reality is we all ought to know, man, I've done some stuff. You cannot look back in your life and say, oh man, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I go there? Why did I do that? Why did I take that road? Why did I make those choices? Jesus died for them all. Not only to forgive you, but so that you could forgive others. Because Jesus paid it all. So all to Him I owe. So whatever's left of this old ragtaggedy body, He gets it all. Whatever He wants to do with it, He can do with it. It's worth it. Because Jesus paid it all. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stay with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up this time to you. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for... God, the, the, the work wrought on the cross, the symbolism, the signs, the pictures, all throughout the Old Testament, God. I pray that you would give us eyes and ears, that we would be challenged by... What the scripture lays out. That it's not about me conforming the scriptures to my understanding. It's about me conforming my life to the scriptures. This is what they say. They call all men everywhere to repent. To beat our breast. To acknowledge I am a sinner before a holy and just God. And that he sent his son to pay a price. A debt I couldn't pay. Now I can reject that payment. In that case, I will stand before a holy God and be judged. Or I can receive that payment and walk the way that Jesus Christ has paved for me. I can follow Him. And as we follow you, Lord Jesus, I pray, I thank you that you gave us your Spirit. Your Spirit to give us strength so that we're not hopelessly doomed to failure over and over again, but rather we're empowered by you. The Bible, Lord, you declared that a righteous man falls seven times a day, but gets up again. How is that even possible? Because you declared in your word that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That your spirit gives us the strength to look to you and ask once again for that forgiveness. And then to turn from that sin and continue to walk. And no matter how many times I struggle or fall, I can look, I can keep my eyes on the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And I follow you. That is what salvation looks like. That is what it looks like when a broken man is made perfect in Christ. That's what it looks like when a broken woman or a child or human being is made perfect in Jesus Christ. So we take up our cross daily. We live in the struggle of our flesh looking forward to the deliverance that will come one day. And between now and then, we walk the walk. We talk the talk. We put our eyes on Jesus who made a way. The gate is open. The door is open. 
the veil is torn. We have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. God be glorified as we acknowledge the truth. And as we worship this morning and as a variety of people will be around uh, for prayer, I pray if there's anybody here today you're speaking to Lord and and they haven't made that commitment to you. They haven't called out upon your name and they want help. That they'd come to one of those uh, around the, the church who are, are standing near the front for prayer. And they ask for help. That's why we're here. Lord God, be glorified. Lord God, be magnified as we put this time in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.